0: Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to
1: broadcast
2: this moment in our history.
1: Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Back in the 19th century, when Karl Marx was developing his theory of proletarian revolution in the pages of Das Kapital, Domestic service was the largest industry in Britain and the vast majority of its workers were women. Today, Britain's working class is more female as well as more ethnically diverse than ever before. Why then does the phrase ordinary working class people tend to conjure up an industrial worker in a flat cap In other words, a man. That's the question that we'll be exploring today in what is the second of a three-part series on new directions in British labor history. The series grows out of a research network titled Writing Labor History in Brexit Britain, a network launched two years ago to challenge the predominant conservative narrative that seemed to assume that the traditional British working class was white, native-born, and in some fundamental way, male. Ever since the Brexit vote, British politicians have invoked tried and true images of the ordinary working class as either a former industrial worker or a self-employed white van man, their lives centered around the time-honored pillars of the workingman's club and football and beer. But where does that image of authenticity come from and what are the consequences of its enduring power? And what happens if we look for different stories? counter-narratives, accounts that spotlight forgotten moments in the history of some of the women who've always made up 50% of the British working class. Joining me today to undertake that exploration are two historians who approach this subject as scholars and activists. Laura Schwartz is Reader in Modern British History at the University of Warwick, Her last book, Feminism and the Servant Problem, included a history of the domestic workers' union. She's just started work on a new project on proletarian countercultures and the invention of the ordinary. George Stevenson is a bargaining and investigative researcher at Unite the Union. He previously worked at Durham and Newcastle Universities, and his book, The Women's Liberation Movement and the Politics of Class, was published in 2019. In this episode, each of them recounts a neglected story of trades union activism that is simultaneously a story of gender. Together, their accounts raise provocative questions about activism, identity, and affiliation, and about the shaping of historical narratives, the ways in which in some tellings of working class history, certain workers count more than others, and some forms of work particularly those routinely performed by women, don't tend to count as labour at all. We begin in 1909 in London, where a 25-year-old woman named Kathleen Oliver, who's employed as a cook, sets out to push for justice and equity for herself and her fellow domestic servants. The result was a new, unprecedented, and almost entirely forgotten union, the Domestic Workers' Union of Great Britain and Ireland. Laura Schwartz picks up the story. The archival extracts are read by Karen Barkey.
3: In August 1909, Kathleen Oliver, a 25 year old London cook, sat down to write a letter to the woman worker. Over the last few weeks, she had been struck by the volume of correspondence that servants like her had sent to this trade union newspaper. Their letters complained of 16-hour working days, of sleeping in a cold attic or the corner of a kitchen, and being given food that their employers would never have deigned to eat themselves. Some servants protested that their mistresses think we are not quite as human as they are, and instead treated them like machines or animals. As one Glaswegian domestic servant described it,
0: This is my life. Getting up. At six o'clock, toiling on until 11pm, often later, liberty, a few hours at the end of the month. For the sake of supporting an aged mother and myself, I am, in truth, a slave, like many others, to idle gadabouts, whose entertainment at afternoon tea consists of talking of our ignorance and dissecting our character.
3: Catherine Oliver's letter proposed a solution to this manifold problem, that domestic servants should organise themselves into a trade union, just as workers in many other industries were doing at this time. Although the years leading up to the First World War were a period of heightened industrial unrest, with strikes and union membership at unprecedentedly high levels, the position of servants had been overlooked by the organised labour movement. The editors of The Woman Worker decided that this needed to be rectified. They took Kathleen Oliver up on her offer to start a trade union for servants and proposed that it become a branch of the National Federation of Women Workers, an umbrella union to which The Woman Worker was affiliated. A hundred years later, I stumbled across Kathleen Oliver's domestic workers' union when I was developing a new project on feminist attitudes to household labour. I'd been researching gender and class in this period for a number of years, but had never heard of any attempt by servants to form a trade union. I was surprised to discover that no historian before me had ever written more than a few lines about this really remarkable endeavour by very young, very militant domestic servants, who rushed to join in the so-called great unrest that was sweeping Britain at the time. But perhaps one of the reasons why this union had been forgotten in the annals of Labour history was because In both popular and political imagination, domestic servants represent the antithesis of the traditional working class. They wore frilly caps, not flat caps. They worked in kitchens and parlours, not shipyards and factories. And they were a workforce made up almost entirely of women. Maybe I noticed this story in the archives when others had passed it over, because of the historical moment in which I was working. Unlike in the 1960s and 1970s, when labour history was at its peak, most people in 21st century Britain work not in factories, but in the service sector. As an activist, I'd supported a number of strikes by cleaners working on the London underground and in universities that had begun to gain ground from the early 2000s. My feminism prompted me to insist upon the importance of this feminised and often invisible labour, to argue that without our homes, workplaces and public spaces being kept clean, the rest of our economy would cease to function. I was therefore curious to trace a longer history of domestic worker organising, of parlour and skivvies coming together to fight for better pay and conditions. The Domestic Workers' Union of Great Britain and Ireland was formally launched in 1910, with Kathleen Oliver becoming its treasurer. Oliver claimed that she was soon besieged on all sides from servants writing to her, eager for more information. By 1913, the union had acquired a regular membership of about 400 servants, with another 2,000 having passed through its books. Local branches sprang up in London, Manchester and Oxford, and in 1913, it merged with the Scottish Federation of Domestic Workers, led by a kitchen maid named Jessie Stephen. The union was exceptional among servants' organisations at the time, in that it saw itself not as a top-down charitable body, but as a union run by servants for servants its members clearly viewed themselves as part of a wider working class. They saw the gains that strikes were bringing to industrial workers and were prepared to take similar action on their own behalf. As two Scottish servants named Sadie and Margie put it,
0: What we think is needed is a union for domestics such as the miners have. We would be pleased to pay into it and we know plenty of servants who would do the same.
3: Despite an enthusiastic response from fellow servants, The Domestic Workers' Union faced considerable hostility from the employer class. Kathleen Oliver recalled,
0: When I announced my plans to found a servants' union, I think that I was, for some time, the best-hated person in London. I received shoals of letters from indignant mistresses informing me of the iniquity of the proposed scheme, claiming that a union would make servants disloyal to their employers and oceans of similar rubbish. But... It will not deter me from writing and speaking whenever the opportunity occurs against the unfair conditions of domestic labour which prevail.
3: By 1911, Kathleen Oliver had become dispirited by the difficulties of organising servants who were isolated in private homes with very little time off to meet and organise. She began to divert more of her energies into campaigning for votes for women placing her hopes in political rather than industrial power as the best way to improve servants' conditions. A few years later, the Domestic Workers' Union was fatally disrupted by the outbreak of the First World War, which saw many women leave domestic service for the higher wages and shorter hours of munitions and factory work. The union nonetheless left an important legacy. Jesse Stephen, the founder of its Scottish branch, attempted to re-establish it on a number of occasions in the interwar period. The Trades Union Congress started a new union for domestic workers in 1938. In the 1950s, char women organised themselves. And in the 1970s, feminists supported night cleaners in offices in central London. Today, migrant cleaners unions are among the most dynamic in Britain and those small have won several important victories. I don't want to overemphasise the size or success of these domestic workers' struggles. It has always been very difficult for cleaners to organise themselves. They faced many obstacles, not least lack of interest from the established trade unions dominated by men. Yet despite these caveats, I think that it's important to acknowledge an ongoing history of domestic worker unionism from the early 20th century up to the present day. It's a reminder that the British working class has always been made up of large numbers of women workers, that many of them have always worked in service industries, and that successful collective action is not limited to the now vacated spaces of the mine, the factory and the dockyard, all of which continue to dominate contemporary fantasies of the British working class, often in an unhelpfully nostalgic and defeatist fashion.
1: Stories like that of Kathleen Oliver act as more than historical footnotes. They point us towards the sheer depth and diversity and complexity of histories of British workplace resistance but what might those stories look like when we get closer to our own time? What do they look like, for instance, when we reach the 1970s, when workplace activism involving female workers occurred alongside a burgeoning movement for women's liberation? That's the question that George Stevenson set out to answer in researching the Trico labor dispute. Beginning in late May, 1976, some 400 women walked out of the Trico windscreen factory in Brentford when management refused to comply with the 1970 Equal Pay Act. While many of their male co-workers continued to turn up at the factory, the women mounted a picket line that they sustained for some 21 weeks. In so many respects, the strike was a turning point. It marked the first time that convoys of lorries carrying strike breaking workers were used against picketers who were primarily female. And in the face of intense opposition, it proved successful in meeting its demands. So, how did these women understand themselves politically? In striking for equal pay with men, often doing battle with male management and union leaders, was their primary identity that of class or of gender? Did they understand themselves as feminists? To answer those questions, George turned to oral history. From 2014 to 2015, he interviewed women who'd been involved in the dispute. In what follows, he replays some of their testimony and reflects on the complexities that it reveals.
4: In the early summer of 1976, 400 women working at the Trico windscreen wiper factory in Brentford voted to strike for equal pay against their American multinational employer. As they walked out together that day, they set in motion the longest equal pay strike in British history, a strike that would illustrate women workers' complex positions in the wider class politics of the period, as well as the tensions and ambivalences they faced in constructing their political identities in relation to feminism and women's liberation. This strike then helps us to examine how class and feminism shaped women in struggle's understanding of the meaning of their political actions. To set the scene, consider, for example, this comment from Sally Groves, one of the women involved in the equal pay strike at Trico.
2: It wasn't a feeling of women's lib on on the picket line, or that we were striking a blow for feminism. We were for equal Pay. We began to realise that, you know, that yeah. we were fighting for equal pay on behalf of all women, we kept saying, later on, mm. not at the beginning. Uh, but there wasn't that feeling of, no. that we were all feminists, on,
4: uh, particularly on other issues. From Sally's comment, we hear an assertion of women's rights, but a rejection of a feminist identity. And it is this type of tension and complexity in political identity construction across different classes that was one of the driving forces of my research. This owes much to my own history. I am by background and identity a working class man. I was brought up in a socialist household. The only question that needed to be asked was whose side are you on? A question I feel is still rarely asked enough in research. However, while I knew in every fiber of my being that there is an us and a them, women and feminism's role in the class struggle was less obvious. In my younger years, and if I'm honest, up until the early stages of my doctoral research, feminism in and of itself was as much a bourgeois diversion as an active requirement of socialist politics. As a result, I was drawn to studying how women trade unionists, and the women's liberation movement navigated these same tensions as they came to a head in the 1970s. By the 1970s, economic trends had significantly influenced the ways that everyone in Britain was living. More jobs became available to women than ever before. And between 1961 and 1971, overall female participation in the labor force increased from 37.5 to 42.6%, and reached 55% for women of working age. This trend continued throughout the 1970s as the percentage of women active in the labor market rose to 60% by 1979. Moreover, only 5% of families in this decade relied on the wage of a single male breadwinner. It was then increasingly ordinary for women to be workers. What is perhaps less recognized is that it also became increasingly ordinary for these women workers to join trade unions. Women's level of unionization grew significantly in the 1970s, with union density rising from 312 to 40.4%, and overall membership numbers increasing by nearly 50%. So just as it was ordinary for men to join trade unions in this period, it was also increasingly true for women, an attitude summed up again by Sally Groves,
2: so, well, with me, I, yes, I mean, I did, I really believed in how important the, the unions, the trade unions were. So I, I would definitely, um, I was keen to make, you know, to be a member if there was a union there.
4: Indeed, the Trico dispute was indicative of how women's experiences in work frequently led them into the same types of class conflict as their male counterparts, which were also commonplace in this decade. However, the often gendered nature of the disputes women workers engaged in, such as for equal pay at Trico, made identification with a straightforward class or trade union consciousness more complex. This is borne out by the next clip in which Sally discussed the meaning of the strike with Anne Fitzgerald, another of the women who went on strike at Trico. I
5: didn't think it was a feminist one, did you?
2: No, no, not feminist. It was, in, it, 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 in, it was the women fighting for equal pay, yeah, it
5: wasn't, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, what what did you feel really? Well, I, I, again, mm. was right for the women. I would yes. put it, but I, I wouldn't. I don't know if, if it was a feminist thing. Well, it or depends not what people mean by feminist. Mm. Yeah, this. there's different ways of looking at it, you know, because there you see them sometimes on the telly and they're saying feminists and now with all these new women going into the government they're saying oh. this feminist, you know, oh. it's coming <laughs> yeah. into that the and they're coming in with the clothes come. they wear and oh. that and oh. it's nothing to do with politics now, that's how they look and how they think and they're saying is that feminist so you don't know where the feminists come in I just think we did Very it for confusing. equal Open. rights for mm. us women mm. and that's how I see it and we came out on top
4: so did you feel like it was you were you were part of a women's movement that while you were on strike you were part of oh, yes. the women's yeah. movement?
5: Yeah, yeah, yes, that was up
4: there. What about you, Sally?
2: Well, I I find this that it's one is posed against another. Mm. We did we did all see it as fighting for women's rights yes we? yes that's the right quality that, that's the right word equality that's time, what i was looking for i think i mean speaking for myself but mm. also you know the experience of all of us together mm. was our trade union helped us win that for us didn't they yes and with yes. us you know yes. what I mean?
5: yeah
4: these interviews showed that for working-class women Their experiences of the world, and particularly of work, meant that gender was not a diversion, it was integral. There are not women and workers, but an intersection of the two in the lived experiences of working class women, concomitant with intersecting forms of exploitation and oppression, which those same women sought to challenge and overcome. However, as Sally and Anne's comments illustrated, this did not mean they saw themselves as feminists, Their political identity still sat within the bounds of class politics above all, but a class politics inflected by a concern for other forms of equality too. In many respects, the strikers I interviewed seemed to share an unspoken sense that feminism was an other, something out of the ordinary in a way that class politics at the time was not. As Anne Fitzgerald commented on, feminism for her was associated with women in government, with clothing, it's nothing to do with politics. Women trade unionists then could often fight for feminist principles such as equal pay, but maintain an ambivalence about feminism itself. But how did feminists, who women trade unionists like Sally and Anne chose to distinguish themselves from, understand the same tensions? Socialist women active in the women's liberation movement usually saw themselves as trying to develop a synthesis between a class-based and gender based politics that would overcome any division between the two. Penny Remfrey, a middle class woman active in the Coast women's group in North Tyneside, reflected on this when I interviewed her.
5: You know, there was the radical feminists that saw patriarchy as the issue, and then there was the socialists socialist, that saw class as the issue and
2: capitalism. And then there was us in between who were beginning to kind of put the two together, really, in seeing you know, capitalism as patriarchal and talk about mm-hmm. capitalism
3: um, and being able to kind of integrate those those two ideas and basically saying that actually you know class society is always been male dom- dominated and as, uh, <clears throat> as economic base changes so
2: the ways in which me- men maintain the dominance changes as well that kind of thing
4: indeed while the working class Trade unionists I interviewed were happy to identify as acting for women, but not feminism. The women's liberationists were far more comfortable seeing their feminism as part of the class struggle and indeed inseparable from it. Nevertheless, tensions did exist. Many women's liberationists were critical of the trade union movement's sexism, including one of my interviewees, Kate Willem, who felt that the importance of women workers' concerns were dismissed by the trade union movement. Um, lip service, maybe. But it was all, I mean, there's uh, this a
2: cartoon about, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was something like, um, you know, a, a male trade union's uh, uh, say, making some comment
4: about, um, you know, equality, dear. <laughs> Despite criticisms like these, work and industrial disputes dominated the news pages of Spare Rib, and other feminist publications in the period. Women's liberationists attended picket lines, set up solidarity funds, and identified strongly with class politics. Another member of the Coast Women's Group, Anne Terode, was explicit about this link.
0: If we hadn't had trade union movement, we wouldn't
2: have had any other movements. I think the trade union movement underpinned all social movements. And I think the trade union movement provided grist for the mill, as it were. And a lot of women were active in both. You couldn't really separate the women's movement from the trade union movement.
4: While there was a division in the political identities of women trade unionists and women's liberationists in this period, their understandings of their political struggles demonstrated to me unequivocally that women's class politics was fundamentally shaped by feminist goals, even if they were not named as such. Similarly, while other women chose feminist or women's liberationist as their political identity, their politics was inextricably linked to the trade union movement, even if they were critical of it. And this brings us back to the Triaco strike. In that strike, the employer withheld holiday pay, laid off hundreds of workers at Triaco and other plants, and brought in the police to help scabs cross picket lines. But after six months, the strikers faced them down and the company gave in to the women's demands. Throughout this bitter dispute, women's liberationists joined the strikers on the picket lines, raised funds, and provided widespread coverage of the strike across feminist media. If the tension between class and gender was rarely transcended in political identity, it was often overcome in political practice. Women's liberation is fought alongside the trade union movement and women trade union is fought for women's equality. And as was the case at Trico, frequently in the very same dispute.
1: I sat down with Laura and George to talk about their work on these stories, about their motives as both scholars and activists and about some of the complexities of integrating gender into the history of labor. I began our conversation by reading from an article Laura had published in the online magazine History Workshop, in which she stated that gendered understandings of work and the working class permeated the British labour movement from its inception.
3: I mean, I think when we wrote that, what we meant was that really from the Industrial Revolution, when we have the emergence of a kind of modern working class, what it has meant to be working class has been inextricably bound up with what it means to be male. And so working class is is kind of predicated upon a certain kind of masculine pride, pride in one's work, pride in one's ability to support one's family. And so that's the kind of cultural level at which this is playing out. But that very much has a material basis about how work is structured under industrial capitalism. And I don't know, George, if you want to talk about that
4: yeah well I suppose the sort of later period that I looked at that you definitely see that that origin story still playing a very powerful role because you have a lot of women in interviews both at the time and subsequently talking about how male workers and trade unions would perceive women's work even in male industries as being sort of for pin money Mm. that in a sense this is this is a bit of spending money it's a bit of additional supplementary income that isn't really necessary but it's just nice to have so this sort of story I think of of women's work in a way being lesser and because it is less productive it might be more in the sort of care sector or the reproductive sector that this is not real work and therefore your status as a worker is also thrown into question. I think that is really, really important for understanding working class identities and the sort of history or the, the story of the working class in Britain, at least the dominant story. And that consistency, that continuity in it, I think is quite interesting that even, you know, a hundred years after Marx is writing about the industrial working class, it's still has those same kind of assumptions and narratives present in it.
3: The, the point is this takes us back to what happens, or this can all be traced back, or much of it can be traced back to what what happens to work under the Industrial Revolution, where to you know to talk in very general terms, home is separated from the workplace, the workplace is defined as male, the home is defined as female. And although this kind of ideology doesn't always map on to reality of course we always have women working in in factories working down mines from the beginning of the industrial revolution this kind of ideological understanding of work is male it happens in the factory the home is female it has nothing to do with work that does have very material effects and so just as georgia said when the work that women do in the home is seen as non-work and even when women work outside the home it's seen exactly as george has just said not as real work
1: so at at what point do women workers begin to conceive of themselves as as workers and begin to kind of take part in the labor movement or want to take part in the labor movement maybe those are two different questions Mm.
3: Well, in in the beginning of the 19th century, women are often excluded from trade unions. They're either explicitly banned from trade union membership or they're simply ignored by male-dominated trade unions. And because um, a, a lot of trade unionists are arguing that men need to be paid a family wage, they need to be paid enough to support a family so their wife can remain at home, when women do work and when women are paid... Lower wages than men. Women are actually seen as the enemy by many male trade unionists. They're they're undercutting male workers' wages. I, I'm always interested in the resonances of this argument in the kind of 19th century for how some people are talking about migrant workers today as if it's migrant workers' fault that they're paid lower wages than workers with UK citizenship, rather than that being the responsibility of the employers. But anyway, I think there's interesting parallels to that argument. So it's not really until the late 19th century, with the rise of something called new unionism, which is uh, trade unions beginning to organise workers in so-called unskilled casualized forms of labor. So not not the kind of skilled industrial work that the craft unions had focused on, but things like jam factory workers, cardboard box factory workers, women making chains in their own houses to be used in industry. So this this kind of so-called unskilled and up until this point, ununionized work is often also women's work. And so this new unionism that's focusing on these different kinds of industries begins to incorporate Women And so in particular, we have something called the National Federation of Women Workers, which is an umbrella organization that um, incorporates within it lots of very small women's trade unions. And so, for example, the Servants Trade Union that I was talking about was part of this National Federation of Women Workers. And so in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, women begin to be involved in the British Labour movement in much larger numbers and actually play an important role in what's known now as the Great Unrest, a period of, of really extremely high trade union militancy from about 1907 until up until the First World War. And, and I think that's the moment when we see women really moving to the centre of the British Labour movement.
4: Yeah, that's quite an interesting parallel, I think, for the period that I've focused on the 1970s, um, because as, as we're sort of aware that the 1970s in popular consciousness, or certainly in right-wing popular consciousness, is a decade of industrial unrest, of huge kind of trade union power that is destroying the country. But the image of that is always very much of it being these kind of male industrial workers Whereas obviously the reality of it is that in the the 1950s, 60s, 70s, women are entering the workplace in greater numbers, both part time and full time. And as they are doing that, they are also joining trade unions. And, you know, Mary Beth, you, you mentioned how did women come to see themselves as workers? Well, one of the things that interested me in my research is that actually women found that a very easy identity to take on in that period that it was quite an automatic thing well yeah I mean of course I'm a worker you know it's not that it's the only identity that you have and that the problem in a sense is that other people did not see it that way so your male colleagues might not see you in those terms your trade union might not see you in those terms your employer might not even see you in those terms exactly your cheap labor rather than a sort of established worker but for women themselves this wasn't a major issue and it was quite a comfortable identity and then that fed into women being involved in a whole host of industrial disputes both as participants alongside men but also in this period the 60s and 70s obviously leading equal pay strikes and opening up if you like a new front in mm. labour politics which is not just to sort of defend paying conditions but is to actually say well no we need a transformation of how this group of workers is seen and is treated and i think that the sort of radicalism of equal pay strikes at that period is sometimes forgotten and how this was actually quite a dramatic transformation and required really powerful collective actions from women trade unionists women workers supported by a feminist movement as well to actually win equal pay even after the law had been changed and women were technically entitled to it that didn't mean they were going to get it it still required a great deal of of class struggle if you like in order to achieve those things so I think that worker identity was comfortable for women in the period that I looked at often more comfortable for example than a feminist identity or a a female like a sort of gendered identity was less significant I think than the worker identity in a lot of cases and the problem was was usually from the other side that you know their, their colleagues or their trade union might not recognize or legitimize if you like that identity with support in in certain cases so and I think one sort of final thing I'd like to say about it is that I think this sort of indicates that at least in the 60s and 70s, whether you were a woman or a man, as a worker, it was quite an ordinary thing to do to join a trade union. So, again, our sort of conception of the ordinary working class, which is something kind of organizing this sort of say, series of podcasts around, I think women coming into the workplace, joining trade unions quite automatically alongside male colleagues does, I think, help us understand that there is an ordinariness to this process at that time. And I I think that's quite important for us to sort of remind ourselves of.
1: I mean, in terms of just who we're talking about when we talk about women's involvement in the workforce, women's involvement in the labor movement, if we look more specifically at women of color, is the story the same, is it different?
3: I mean, there has been a multicultural working class in Britain, you know, for centuries. And Caroline Bressy, for example, has written about uh, black, m- black barmaids and servants of colour in kind of Victorian and Edwardian Britain. So some women of colour must have been involved in the great unrest in the early 20th century um, that I was referring to earlier, although there is still very little uh, scholarship on this And an important shift occurs around the Second World War with large scale Commonwealth immigration. And many women come to Britain from the Caribbean and South Asia. And I think that looking at their experience requires us to think a lot more critically about what is often a kind of romanticized story that is told about the post-war period as a period of working class affluence and of trade union power. Because actually in the 50s and 60s, trade unions are very hostile to migrant workers in a lot of cases. And although we see, I mean, I've just been rereading um, Stella Dadsey's book, The Heart of the Race, Which is still, despite the amount of scholarship that has been done since it was written in the early 1980s, still has so much to say about our understandings of not just the second half of the 20th century, which was what it looks at, but actually what's going on in Britain today. So in that book, they point out that Although Black and Asian women workers are crucial to the NHS and to the welfare state, they come and they do the work of the welfare state, their nurses, their caterers, their cleaners, they don't always get to enjoy the fruits of the welfare state. You know, we have extremely racist uh, council housing policies, for example. But many Black and Asian women are key to kind of pushing forward the industrial militancy of of the late 60s and 1970s that that George works on so I guess I'll I'll hand over to George to take up that bit of the story now
4: yeah well I mean the the sort of obvious example that jumps out I think about this is Grunwick which is a a story of a strike led predominantly by immigrant women workers which in sort of popular story, even on the left, the sort of popular story of Brunwick, I think, is that this is this incredible moment where the trade union movement, white male workers act in incredible solidarity with Asian female workers in a sort of extremely exploitative factory. They join tickets. The NUM comes down and supports it. It becomes this sort of huge cause. For the labor movement, and it is talked about in those terms at the time. But I think the thing that's quite significant about it is that after that dispute is lost, that the way in which a lot of the Asian women leaders of that strike, like Jarabin Desai, talk about the union leadership, is actually quite negative. Mm. And their kind of understanding of how supportive at least the trade union leadership was of their dispute is somewhat different and more complex than I think the the popular story would suggest. And I think they they definitely felt betrayed by the British trade union movement. And there are questions here about, so, so at the end of that dispute, there is a hunger strike that is decided on as a sort of final tactic of potentially trying to win. And at this point, the trade union movement, the leadership of the trade union movement kind of pull away their support from it. They disavow this tactic. And there's, I think this does tie into, again, our understanding of what is British working class militancy about and what is considered to be acceptable forms of class struggle or dispute. And perhaps you know, things like hunger strikes, which are associated perhaps more with women's rights, with anti-colonial politics rather than class politics, at least in Britain, did play a role in that kind of rejection of those workers. And so I think the story, you know, that, that Laura talked about for the kind of inception of industrial militancy um does still remain the case to a large extent and a lot of the stories of black and asian women workers are still invisible i think are still missing in the workplace and i you know i can admit that i don't think i was able to uncover them as well as i would like to have done but where they come up it does seem again that there is an exclusionary aspect of the trade union movement, and it does come back to this kind of definition of the working class and working class militancy should take particular forms, and you should not step outside of that. And women and women of color problematize that narrative. I think. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, by the sounds of it, they they problematize it. But there's also the the kind of flip side, which you've already mentioned and suggested that the narrative itself makes them invisible. It makes certain forms of, of protest and activism invisible because it prioritizes some and and doesn't recognize others.
3: Um, I mean, I all... think, sorry, yeah, no, carry on. No,
1: no, no, go ahead, go ahead.
3: Well, I mean, you've just, as 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 George and I were talking, I was thinking about this, and then I think your question has, has raised it again, is that there's always a tension when, as a historian, you're trying to talk about, The problems, for example, of mainstream trade unionism, male dominated trade unionism, white dominated trade unionism. And so it's it's incredibly important to point out the limitations of that trade unionism, to point out the moments in which it was racist, to point out the ways in which it excluded women, the ways in which it excluded workers of colour, the way in which it excluded women workers of colour. But in telling that story, I think we need to not do the thing that we're criticising, which is to erase the presence and contribution of women workers of colour, because they were there, they were active, they were in many ways incredibly important in pushing trade unions towards more militant agendas, in spite of all the obstacles that they faced. I mean, something that I found very interesting in um, the heart of the race, and also in Jack Saunders' work on um, NHS workers is, that these historians argue that white women working as nurses in the kind of, you know, 60s and 70s have been socialized into a very particular kind of white femininity. A nurse is supposed to be kind. She's supposed to be caring. She's not supposed to complain. She's not supposed to be being militant on a picket line. She's supposed to be acting out a certain kind of feminine role looking after sick people. And in some ways black women nurses are not kind of constricted by that same socialization of white femininity they have other constrictions but not but not that one and so in some ways they push fellow nurses fellow white nurses to say you know what we need to like you know we we need to stop sucking up this shit and we need to be doing what the building workers are doing or what the mine workers are doing and and you know arguing that this is work it's not a natural function of our feminine role and we need to be properly paid for it and i thought that was a really interesting example of how a kind of specifically racialized position can bring something new and incredibly positive to the trade union movement, despite all the obstacles and racism that also need to be acknowledged. And I think it's it's difficult sometimes to hold those two narratives together, but I think it's important to do so.
1: I mean, it seems as though what you're talking about is a question about narratives and invisibility, the things that, that count and the things that don't. And I wondered if we could wind back a bit to the point that you started with that because of just the nature of so much of women's labor black women and 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 white women that you know it occurs informally it occurs in certain settings it occurs in certain forms that is not classified as work what happens to the labor movement what happens to the trajectories of labor history? If you start questioning that categorization, if you take that categorization away, and how might thinking about how gender has complicated what counts as work, how might that expand, or broaden, or um, enhance our stories of the working class experience in Britain?
4: Well, I, I think. I mean, one of the main arguments of my book was, was precisely about what happens when you take the reproductive sphere of labor seriously. And you think about it as a form of class politics as well. Um, Not just as labor, but also as a sort of political expression of that labor. And I think that what it does really is completely upturn the whole kind of discipline of labor history, really, because it, it, Do you want to say
3: what the reproductive sphere is, George? Yeah, sorry.
4: So the reproductive sphere being everything from childcare, housework, domestic labour, but then also paid work in a kind of care sector. So in other words, the labour that is done in order to enable the society to reproduce itself, both emotionally, materially, physically, whatever, all of these forms of labour that are absolutely essential to any economic system, any mode of production, but are also particularly are set up in particular ways under capitalism. Whereas as something that Laura mentioned earlier around the sort of the division between the private sphere where women are sort of pushed into and then this public sphere where men are allowed to work, but this is kind of an exclusionary division what that has meant historically is that then under capitalism women have ended up being concentrated in this reproductive sphere that they are the ones who do this caring labor whether it is paid or unpaid a lot of the time but it is labor and so if this is essential to capitalism then i think that a labor history that takes itself seriously and tries to understand labor and capital in their totality, does have to take this experience to be essential and to be central to its kind of form of study. So I I suppose, yeah, I think it has huge ramifications for labor history. But I don't know if Laura, if you have anything else you want to add to that.
3: (laughs) no i think that's i think that's quite right and i think labour history is moving in that direction now so george has written about women's strikes um, in in the 1970s and 80s we're in a network with julia late who who writes about sex workers throughout the 20th century who's very much arguing that this needs to be understood as labor history, not necessarily the history of sexuality, not necessarily gender history, although it is, of course, both those things, but first and foremost, it's a history of work. You know, sex work is the ultimate kind of labor that's not been recognized as a proper and legitimate form of work and we have sex worker unions today that are still to some degree facing hostility from the more established trade unions. And I guess, you know, my work on on the domestic workers union, I couldn't believe when I stumbled across this union that was founded in 1910 that no one had written about it before. It was such a brilliant story. And I, you know, so then I had to ask the question, why has no one written about this before? And I think what George has said about You know, labor history has reproduced the same kind of prejudices that the labor movement has suffered from, which is, you know, what counts as real work and what doesn't. And domestic servants were not considered real workers, either at the time or by historians looking back on the labor movement. And so, you know, they were never really included in in labor histories. And similarly, actually, feminist historians had not written about this domestic workers union perhaps because these women domestic servants were working in the homes of middle-class women their bosses were also women often their bosses were feminist women and so you know I think we've talked a lot haven't we about the tensions and exclusions of women from the labor movement and we haven't really talked about the other side of things, which is about the tensions and exclusions of working class women from the women's movements and about class division between women. Um, So anyway, my my point was that I think that labour history is now opening up to thinking much more about different types of work. It's expanding its definition of what counts as work and what counts as a subject worthy of labour historians' interests.
1: I guess my final question around this what is gained by discussing gender and class together by bringing those two categories together and you've you've just spoken about what's what's gained for the writing of labor history i wondered how you see this kind of playing out now and what impact you'd like to see this sort of broadened and or more nuanced understanding of work, what impact you'd like to see it have on on labour politics in the future?
4: Well, maybe one thing I'd start with is that I think we are seeing it have an impact on labour politics now, perhaps not as much with some of the established unions. But certainly, if you look at one of the sort of the famous things that's happened recently, the the victory of the Amazon Labour Union, in the US in one of its um, elections and that what you sort of see in the type of organizing that they did was to try and move towards a kind of whole worker organizing so you recognize that the people you are with are not just workers for eight hours a day or whatever and then they go home and they disappear but that in fact they have social lives and they have communities that they exist in and that when you look at some of the kind of movement in these more grassroots unions towards engaging with the community, making sure that the union is embedded within the population and within the people who are around it, making it a part of people's lives, not just their work, that I think actually you do see very slowly trade unions learning from Women's experiences, basically, of of saying, you know, actually, this side of our lives is also part of work, is also part of labour, and if you want to win in the workplace, you also need to organise in the community, and that this is this is an essential part of it. So that's that's one thing um, I think that's quite useful.
3: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, George, because in a sense, the experience of women workers and or workers working in feminized industries is much more relevant now to to the economy in the West, which is a service-based economy, than a more male-centered understanding of trade union organizing that was, you know, based based on 20th century manufacturing and industrial economies. And so actually, as historians, if we can kind of, begin to excavate more and more the experiences however small and and kind of um fragmented of unions like the domestic servants union of of cleaners struggles in the 1970s we we you know we might be able to learn something quite useful about how to organize in a service industry today exactly as as george has just said yeah
4: yeah exactly and i think you know you mentioned the sort of the, the night cleaners in the 70s well if you look at london offices now that exactly the same kind of difficulties and challenges of organizing a very disparate mm. workforce mm. remain in place i bet if anything they may have become more complicated with company ownership structures and trying to work out who actually is employing someone across these sectors so and these sectors also remain heavily female-dominated, they are still low status, they are still low paid, even though they are essential to life, to human life in Britain and, and elsewhere. And so maybe that's one of the other... So, Obviously, there are things, therefore, we can learn from those struggles and put into practice in current disputes. But also, I think, looking at women's experiences of work and broadening it out the other lesson is very much that this is essential and through covid and through this pandemic we had a lot of discussion about what is essential what is key work and what you start to see is well actually a lot of the key work in this country is done by women and therefore if you are looking at how you might organize a genuinely powerful kind of labour movement that is able to affect and have leverage over employers and over governments, then women are going to have to be at the centre of that. And this is absolutely crucial to any kind of organised labour movement politics in the future.
1: Many thanks to Laura Schwartz, George Stevenson and Karen Barkey for making this episode happen. You can read more about them and their work and about the research network that developed this series on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.